You've heard it, we've all heard it, words matter. What we don't hear is that words matter because they are matter. This insight, along with others we cover on this show, gives you a superpower. The ability to harness the power of words to revolutionize workplaces and the world. The power to create cultures where productivity soars, profits rise, and people feel included and inspired. As with all superpowers, you have to learn how to manage it. And that's what this podcast is all about. It's about getting intentional with your communication eyes, your inputs, aka words and language, to get the O's, the outcomes, aka the results, the impact that you want. Join me, your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, and my amazing guests as we explore the wild and wonderful world of Communicate I.O. Welcome, everyone, to the Communicate I.O. podcast. I'm Erica Mills Barnhart, the founder and CEO of Claxon. I have with me here today Dr. Sarah Murdoch, and we are going to have what I anticipate to be a free-range or wide-ranging conversation um, about change, leadership, social impact, and, of course, communication, how you can use words to make the world and your workplace a better, better um, because that's what this podcast is all about. I'm going to read... Dr. Sarah's bio, but she was like, what does that bio say? So here's what the bio says. <laughs> I, I, I relate to that remark because oftentimes when I'm introduced, like when I'm speaking or something, I'm like, I wonder what they're going to say. You'll have an opportunity to, you know, amend or edit. Uh, but this is, this is what it says. And I just, I was so struck by both the focus and the range of your work. So I wanted to read this for, for listeners. I'm going to read verbatim. Um, Dr. Sarah Murdoch is a globally renowned expert in power dynamics and leadership, founder of the More I Group. Dr. Sarah Murdoch serves as a pioneer in the fields of environmental social governance, ESG, and DEIMB, which stands for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging, with a 20-plus year track record in catalyzing profound and necessary cultural shifts in the workplace. International organizations, rapidly scaling tech startups, heads of state and traditional corporations alike consistently hire Sarah for her unique ability to establish mutual understanding, respect and growth within teams in a way that fuels accelerated profitability and drives authentic company branding, two things that go together yet aren't always, you know, linked explicitly. So I love that. Sarah cements her mantra, which is change isn't hard, it's human, into every thread of her proven methodology, responsible for helping hundreds of companies and organizations set the standard in DEI and ESG. With a PhD in social impact from UC, uh, University of California, Los Angeles, and an MA in organizational development from Seattle University, Sarah is frequently sought after as a keynote speaker, author, and panelist for leading international conferences, publications, and podcasts. And here's where it gets fun. She's also a trained ballroom dancer. And in her free time, she enjoys partner dancing, traveling, and writing. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you so much. And I feel like I should applaud you, actually. for That's very long. I didn't realize how long that was to say out loud. Well, yeah. I, I mean, it's a titchy long, but I just didn't feel like... It, I felt like I would do you a disservice if I edited any of it out because it all felt relevant. It all felt relevant. I also noticed, like, so we have a lot of overlap mm, <laughs> in our work. Fun. So I had to do some serious, like, pruning and hold myself accountable when I was, like, figuring out, you know, what which directions I wanted to take the conversation. <laughs> and we can go in whatever direction you want. But that because there's so many, 
so many things to talk about because we both work with what I call purpose-driven, you know, leaders and teams and organizations, um, aka, you know, people who want to make the world a better place, which is also the people listening to the show. So we have that in common. So we have the, I, I did read your full bio. So we have the capital O official capital V version of you, but give us the unfiltered, the, the unfiltered version. What drew you to focus on change, leadership, social impact, all of that? Yeah. Well, thank you for that question. Because oftentimes, as I know, you know, the unspoken is the most profound when it comes to communications. And I suppose, as poetic as that sounds, that's actually a lot of what drives me. I find that frequently what we find on paper, what we find the sort of official mission or vision of a project to be is not what people are doing. You know, how people behave and how they show up in the morning. I shouldn't say they, this is all of us. How I show up in the morning and how we add value at the end of the day says as much or more about the type of leader that we are. So <laughs> I suppose the the sort of unfiltered version of, you know, who who is Sarah is just, you know, one tiny human on this rock hurtling in space doing the best that she can. <laughs> And, and to be clear, I'm not saying this to try to sound humble. I, I lead with this simply to say I began working in change and I began working in social impact when I was quite young. And I think the reason for that and the reason why I've had so much success over the years is because I sort of forget to be afraid. And I really just do the best that I can in any given meeting, any given moment. And that's enough. So I feel like the sort of unfiltered version is, you know, again, just somebody who wants to leave the planet, you know, at least as good as she found it, hopefully slightly better. And that's what I am trying to do. And that's kind of like the only thing I am trying to do. Okay. Just because that is so fascinating. I feel like anyone who can say, I forget to be afraid is sort of elevated, quite elevated or evolved. <laughs> I know that are really dumb. <laughs> I'm going to go with the previous definition, but how did, were there things that happened in your life that allowed you to get that sense of self and like become self-possessed? And what I'm saying is your self-esteem doesn't come from other people. Yeah, that's true. That's a really, really good point, actually. Yeah, I think there there were a handful of things. I know it sounds like a little bit cheesy, like I'm on, you know, Miss America pageant or something, but my grandma was just like a total influence for me. And I grew up in the same house as her. And she was kind of my other mom. And I think just watching her, it wasn't even what, again, what she said, just who she was. She was just a natural matriarch. She kind of had that, just that walking ray of sunshine type of vibe. And, you know, she grew up the poor daughter of, you know, Eastern European Jewish immigrants. It's not like she had very much, you know, but she was just like, hey, I've got food on the table, you know, hugs at the end of the day could be worse, you know, like just kind of that. I, I just realized I like almost presented that like a Jewish vaudeville comedian, which was like kind of her vibe. Just like, it adds spark. It adds spark to yeah, the whole thing. Like she she had chutzpah, right? And, and I think just like watching her, yeah, just show up, just show up every damn day and just make the best of things like imprinted on me as a little bike. And so I think that was really Because you could influential. feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is palpable. Exactly. You can't, you can't fake that amount of authenticity. Exactly. 
Absolutely. You know, when I work with leaders around, you know, leadership, but by way of communication and the, and the language they're using um, and how they're communicating, this is a lot mm. of the work that we dig in on. Like a lot of the things that, you know, the beginning of the engagement that they offer are presenting problems for these deeper, for yeah. these deeper issues. So I love that. <laughs> okay, let's talk about hashtag return to office. Mm. I would say this is one of the biggest, you know, changes that organizations are navigating. I'm in conversations daily with, you know, clients and leaders on this who are like flexible environments, hybrid. In a recent Instagram post, you wrote the whole hashtag return to office thing bums me out because there isn't evidence that it helps with camaraderie and teamwork. It's correlation, not causation. I actually did clap when I read that. You know what does create wildly world-class teams, honesty and humanism and transparent communication. You go on to say, and I just, I had to keep going with this because this analogy is so awesome. The debate about number of days at the office is like debating how much food to eat without considering quality of what you put in your mouth. So there's a lot to unpack here. Let's start with the evidence. So what is the evidence actually saying about the pros and cons of returning to the office? Yeah, so... From what I've seen, and I'm I'm always going, hey, if people have other data, yeah, please let's see it. I'm, I'm this giant nerd, right? So I'm, I'm always learning. You know, we're we're all in this together, always trying to to do the best information that we have. Um, but what I've seen so far is that the data is that quality of work life balance is more important than trying to to magically discern like the exact number of hours or time that every single person on your team is going to need. It also, by the way, in this day and age, might help you avoid things like lawsuits, I'm just saying, because there is no such thing as one size fits all. And then when you try to equitably figure out who needs to be there when, that you know that's where we get into like opinion or you know, who was the loudest asker or who felt psychologically safe to ask or who you felt like granting that to because you like them better. Let's be honest here, that happens all the time. So all that is to say, if you can check in with your team about the why of where they are and what is or isn't working for them, like all the time, you know, not just once a year in some pulse survey, 30,000 foot view, but all the time, hey, What's going on with your kids, you know, next month? Like, what is what does September look like for you? You know, um, or hey, with this new project rollout that we have starting uh, in January, we're going to have a slightly different workflow. Do you think that that this configuration will be conducive to that, or do you think you might need something else? It's called a conversation, right? Theoretically, we're all adults. Theoretically, we're we're all professionals conversations don't need to be that hard. So from an equity and inclusion perspective, how how would a, a leader navigate like disparate circumstances? So like different people, I think this is what I'm hearing a lot of like, if they're having those conversations, let's assume the best. They're just not sure how to move forward. It's like, well, some people really want to be in person again. And other people are like, I'm good at home. I have all these other responsibilities. So how yeah. can they, and, and all the clients I work with are you know, committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. How do you navigate that as a leader? Mm, yeah, a couple of things. So I think if you truly believe that there's a certain framework that will work for a given project that your company is is engaged in, that's fine. You know, you're you can speak up and make your case, right? You have agency as well. 
So definitely do that pre-thinking first. People might even be looking to you to make suggestions, right? People might actually want you to say, hey, we imagine that, you know, two days a week at the office would be really helpful because we'll spend it in this way. You know, I've thought about this. I think that that might be really helpful for us all to get on the same page. Might actually help us work smarter and not harder. You know, I think we can even take a shave a couple days or excuse me, a couple hours off of our Friday, you know, if we really get together and like work smart on Monday or whatever it may be, make that suggestion. It's not like you have to sit there and kind of, you know, get get trampled in this process. It's Again, it's a conversation, but that does require that you just show up as a leader and make a claim, right? Like take a stance. Doesn't on it also require high levels of trust, which is also something that you talk a lot about and write a lot about? Yeah, yeah. That is a very, very good point. Everything that I just said is contingent on psychological yeah, safety. Yeah, talk about Absolutely. psychological safety. It's just like, 100%. It's huge. Will you define it first? Because, I mean, I think most listeners are familiar, but just let's start with defining and then go from Yeah, I get so passionate about it. I'll probably start like sweating and stuttering here. Because to me, it's like psychological safety is so foundational that if you haven't established that, almost nothing is going to work anyway, right? Amen. Even if you've done your research and you're really, you know, responsive in this and that, it just won't work. So psychological safety, the, the, it's very, very simple. It's, are you communicating both verbally and through action in a way that helps your people not feel good, mind you, that's not the objective, but genuinely believe that you will not freak out no matter what they say, as long as they're being productive. Like that's essentially the the long and short of it that, you know, it's not, it's not free reign to be a jerk. Some people say like, Oh, well, you know, we don't want our employees going off the reservation or this or that not, you know, completely missing the point in that case. It's have you given the them the stalwart impression that as long as they are doing their best to be you know productive with their feedback that any and i do mean any feedback is at the very least okay and at you know the the real gold standard here is that you will take it to heart you will think about it you will come back to them with again a productive adult professional conversation, it is about dialogue, right? It and is not about taking it personally. I'm hearing underneath that, like taking exactly. it, taking whatever the decision is at that point in time, assuming best intentions on behalf of your leader and mm-hmm. having high enough trust there, mm-hmm. and then being able to say, okay, that's not the outcome I necessarily was hoping for. But I think this is another. <laughs> I really appreciate how much you focus on conversation because. You know, I feel like so many decisions are framed as forever decisions. And we live in a in a period of time where like almost every decision is a for now decision. Yeah. Like just it's iterative intentionality um, rather than like, and here's a thing, you know, like kathunk. <laughs> like here are the Ten Commandments, they're written on stone. <laughs> but we kind of yeah. have that. And that and you know, to me that connects back to psychological safety because if you are in a place where you don't feel psychologically safe, and I do I want to flag here that women and people who live in marginalized communities or are marginalized just by definition have lived experience that make psychological safety uh, harder to come by. And so as a leader, you need to school yourself up in terms of understanding that doesn't have to do with you and it influences the environment in which you are navigating and operating. Absolutely. And and if I may, because I think that's a really, really crucial point. One of the pieces that I 
unfortunately seem missing for most conversations on psychological safety takes power dynamics out of the equation. So whether it's, you know, age and generation, whether it's English language and any language, I guess I should say, you know, depending where you are in the world, sort of who's speaking what language, whatever the dominant language is. Exactly. Whether it's, um, you know, women or, you know, non-binary folks, whether it's uh, people who present, because I don't even make assumptions about how people identify anymore, right? But, you know, are we presenting as white? Are we presenting as something other than white, et cetera, that um, it's actually the onus in that case is on the person from the majoritarian identity to work harder, harder (laughs) to establish psychological safety. For anybody who feels like, oh, that's a tax or, you know, why do I have to do the extra work? It's very, very simple. It's just context, right? Like, don't take it personally. Again, if you're a professional, you will do what it takes to establish the quality conversation in that environment. And in that case, it is showcasing to the other person, I've got your back. I'm here to listen to you. I get that there is a long history and you are probably walking in the shoes of somebody with decades of lived experience that people like me do not have your back. And I get that that's not about me or it's, you know, or even you necessarily, right? We can co-create a better conversation. Yes. Let's go back to communication because you, you, and that now long ago in our, in our conversation, I referenced, uh, you advocate for transparent communication. And then I can't remember where I found this, but someplace else you said eloquently, the biggest gap between employees and employers is the desire for honest, open, transparent communication. 100% agree. It was interesting when I'm talking to teams, you know, generally, well, we're going to do a communication assessment so that everybody like actually knows their communication style, which is always illuminating. But then it's always surprising, <laughs> kind of breaks my heart sometimes, well-intentioned leaders are like, oh, I thought that you know, what? either I thought I was communicating transparently or, oh, well, I, I don't want to burden my team with all the everything that I as the leader am holding. So I thought I was being strategic. So what does, like, paint a picture, if you can, for listeners of, like, what does honest, open, transparent communication look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think simply starting with what's the objective of that meeting anyway is a pretty darn good base point, right? Can I just interject, like, wouldn't you think that that would be standard <laughs> protocol? And it's not, and that is not a slight against anybody. We're just simply not trained to do it. Totally. Start with the outcome yes. that you want to achieve. No, extremely well put. I, I, I'm i like, that was, that was enough. No, <laughs> um, no, that was, that was so, so crucial to, to the topic that in some ways there isn't even much else to say. It's sort of like, well, why are you having that meeting, right? What is your intention for bringing your team together at that point in time? start there. You know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And again, it's not about getting it perfect. It's a, it's about showing up, doing the best you can. And guess what? People feel that, right? If you're showing up earnestly trying to communicate again with your team in a way that serves them, serves the organization, even if you don't say the perfect thing or have the perfect agenda, they're going to feel you showing up for them, right? They're going to feel you doing the best that you can. And they will respond way more to that than to some perfectly crafted intro statement. They will also feel your volition for perfection. And it's not a good feeling. (laughs) That volition, which is a very white dominant, I say, as a recovering perfectionist, it's very white dominant. And it's like a very contracted 
feeling. It's not an inclusive feeling because you're so busy being like, got to get it perfect, got to get it perfect, that you're not able, Um, like so much of your brain energy is going there, that you're not able to like pick up on the beautiful cues and the biofeedback from your team. And that requires a level of transparency that I would say is sort of, sort of new. (laughs) Thanks, Brene Brown. Um, kind Kind of a new thing. We've used the word productivity introduced a few times. So I want to, in my ebook, uh, Recharge, um, I advocate for humanity over productivity because again, productivity sort of at its base is from the industrial revolution. It's a way to perpetuate white dominance. And I feel like there's an opening, like an awareness of that. And so, and yet we still have to produce. So can you speak to the role that productivity has played in the workplace and kind of the impact of our, I would say, collective obsession with productivity? It's, I, I, I guess I, I have times when I wonder if, if we are not moving beyond that as the proxy because it's out of fear and also we kind of don't have something that feels as concrete to replace it with. And like the universe hates a vacuum, so something's going to get, you know, like something has to replace it. Right, right. It's a really good point. Yeah. So, all right. So this is like maybe a little bit scandalous, but I believe that productivity as a standard is very lazy, which is sort of counter to the dominant narrative about it, right? So as you just alluded to, productivity was sort of invented as a way to give us the illusion of progress, right? And stories are powerful, right? So if we have a story where we can tick off, you know, I'm doing this or I'm delivering this or I'm outputting this, therefore I have value. It is a, it's like a really lazy kind of transactional one-dimensional way to measure my own worth or value. And then certainly to try to see another human being and what they bring to the table, Um, and so, and I love that you point out that this is, you know, a a thread of white supremacy too, because it requires that I value what I can see or like what I recognize, you might say as productive, I shouldn't say see, because that, that implies it's visual, but it's like, if I recognize that you are doing something productive, then I say, good job. You are a productive employee. Right. Um, whereas if I can recognize the array and the depth of labor that you're bringing to the table, all of a sudden I can appreciate you in a whole like multi-dimensional, you know, like one of those, one of those magic eye things. Maybe that's, that's where the visual, um, you know, component. Yeah. It's kind of like, so what's the alternative in the multiverse? <laughs> right. Right. And, exactly. And is there a way, I mean, as I'm listening to you talk, I wonder if there, and this would, I, I like, I, I really appreciate you saying it's lazy. I had never quite thought about it that way, <laughs> but it's about, it's a proxy for value and contribution. Yeah, it's and like just to make it like because that, that was very conceptual, I realized yeah, what I yeah. just said. So to kind of drill down, this is a slightly stereotypical example, but just to to kind of contextualize it a bit. So say, you know, we look at a stereotypical, like a female secretary, you know, young woman who's starting out her job, and, and we say that looks easy. I I register what she's doing as simple or as easy, or you know, maybe that's cute and that works for her because she's 23 or something like that. And the story is that she is inputting certain types of labor, right? And kind of outputting certain tasks versus I look at 
again, kind of making this up as I go along, but like the genius R&D, you know, head of research or something like that. And, you know, Dr. So-and-so is an esteemed whatever and his genius creations are saving the planet, you know. And then I look at his labor and I have a certain story about that and a certain story about the value and, and what he's actually bringing to the table. Now, I'm not here to compare any type of, you know, like it's not like scientist versus secretary. It's a silly uh, comparison. But it's I'm the one who's projecting my own internal narrative about their labor onto them rather than saying, hey, you know, how is this human being showing up at work? What are the contextual you know, ways that that they're uh, working that maybe not part of their job description that I have failed to put into their employee review, right. you know, that I am failing to understand about how they're showing up in the morning? I'll never forget. So when I was, well, I had owned a contract paralegal company and then... Oddly, I became the associate director of commerce undergraduate programs at the University of British Columbia. Yep, it's like up there for longest title. So I was very young, <laughs> um, and because growing up, I trans—I like uh, I could type really fast because I translated all my my I transcribed for my dad, so I could type like yeah. 150 words a minute. Um, so I walk in. I've never had a secretary before, and so I think you know there was filing to do, and in an effort to be helpful, and I'm air quoting. I do some piling and um, I had two secretaries, one of them walked in, Malia, and she said, so I need you to understand something. I am very good at my job. I chose to be an executive assistant as a career because I am so good at it. And I see that you're trying to be helpful and you're actually making things more complicated for me. You are very good at these other things. Let me do my job so that you can do your job better. That's so oh my great. God. I mean, that was a gift because I know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. She was exceptional. I mean, she was truly exceptional. Yeah. So, but we have these narratives about different roles and levels and, and now that is communicated. Uh, I mean, this relates, I, I would also just connect a dot to organizational culture and who gets to take the time to think deep thoughts. Like there's a rhythm to the, to the, to the production. And that I would say that that timeline gets longer as you go up and you don't, in some instances, and, you know, whereas Malia was expected to do the pilot on a regular basis, you know, other people are like, well, it takes 10 years to come up with your genius gem there. You go. Right, right. Interesting. So to talk yeah. about the future of work a little bit, uh, and then at the end, get tactical, because I know, because I've talked to them, that we have listeners who are like, I want concrete suggestions for how to manage hybrid meetings. <laughs> It's so awkward. So I want to get to some tactical stuff too and not just stay meta. But I thought it was interesting. So you talk about executive education and employee development. And you said in an interview that that will be more common in the future. And then you said, I would say, I would even say that companies that don't have robust learning and development, whether in-house or externally, will be considered blue-collar jobs regardless of industry or sector. In other words, a tech job that doesn't prioritize learning would be considered rudimentary, and a construction job that involves ongoing education will be considered more advanced. Also, possibly a little, you know, like, what? Um, I mean, I can imagine some of the listeners are like, what the, what, what, what? Right. Okay. So <laughs> say more about that because listeners, I mean, they want to be future compatible. They want to keep their employees. It's a play retention, obviously it's a big issue. Well, and maybe I'll just uh, lead with like a, a two second backstory on myself, which is that, you know, I grew up the daughter of a truck driver and a fourth grade teacher. So <laughs> 
I have maybe a little bit of an interesting perspective on narratives about blue collar, oh, right? Oh, and sort okay. of thank what you for can look like um, to to folks who, yeah, who who have careers that you know us us uh, what do, what do we call ourselves intellectual types, you know us uh, desk workers uh, might be oblivious to sometimes. So yeah, I you know I think the long and short of it is that the idea that blue collar is working with one's hands and that white collar is working with what like finance or tech or intellect is. I mean, I feel like that was like, like that's something that my auntie probably made up. Yeah, yeah it exactly. It's also industrial yeah. revolution slash, you know, emerging to where we are today, which is right. a different economy. No, totally. And, and as I know, you know, I mean, when it comes to attracting, retaining, developing the best talent, both from an organizational sort of internal like operation strategy, but also just from a competitiveness strategy, you know, having people who like working for you and want to show up and make really cool stuff, you know, you have to offer opportunities to grow. Like you just have to. It is non-negotiable. It is absolutely what Gen Z is looking for. Yeah, this generational piece is super important. Yeah, it like there... They're so utterly uninterested in just the paycheck for the sake of the paycheck. It's like, it almost doesn't even factor in, you know, it's, it's almost like, wait, I'm sorry. Like, like what, what, what do you Scrooge McDuck or something? Like we have a planet to save, you know, it, it's like, get with the program here, old, you know, old people. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> I thought you'd want to talk about money. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll get back on track. Yeah. So I, I think some of it's just that simple. Like I think for, for Gen Z and younger millennials, like that's just what's expected. It makes me think back to your comment about like, have a conversation. Don't back off of the conversation and ask about like, what's coming up? Like if you know that they're a parent, what's coming up for you? It's like this, you know, this whole human approach, hmm. which in the past we've be, tried to be like, well, that's your home stuff. This is your work right. stuff. It's like, mm, you know, once we went through COVID and somebody's cat and their child and everything has strolled through the screen, like we can't, we can't <laughs> put the genie back in the bottle. I don't even think it was a genie before, but I just I thought that was so interesting. And it it is a way of communicating. Like at the beginning of this interview, you said something around like, oftentimes what is communicated is the unsaid. Um, and if we just sort of go along and never and act like nobody's noticing that you're actually not investing in them as humans. And of course, there's a there's a bottom line benefit, of course. I mean, one of the reasons that I really get excited and worked, I've just say worked up about helping teams and leaders communicate more effectively is because most organizations lose 20 to 25 percent of their time to ineffective communication, like simple communication mistakes. 20, 25 percent. Yeah, that is that's a wild. day a week. Yeah, And, you know, again, for the people I work with, they truly, it doesn't matter if they're nonprofits, foundations, corporations, CSR, doesn't matter. They want to make the world a better place. So to me, I was like, that is unconscionable. This is not rocket science, what I do, but I can help you. I can help you like reduce that percentage pretty considerably. <laughs> Let's do that. Um, but that is an investment, you know, on that side. So, you know, I do a lot of external messaging because I'm really good at coming in and being like, switch this different verb wrong vibe, you know, like I can, I mean, doing it for 20 years, I can do that quickly. Like I can now take work that often takes organizations a year and we can do it in 30 days. It doesn't, by the way, it doesn't have to take that long. But the internal work is more out of the professional development budget. And it's very interesting to see how different those, those conversations are with clients. 
Yeah. Well, and just maybe one other very quick thing um, that I'll say about that sort of so-called blue collar slash, you know, what white collar thing um, is, is that it also assumes that there's like a particular echelon that everybody on your team or like even that your company in general must adhere to. And as I know, you know, so many products and services these days span the gamut, you know, like, so I, I guess it's, it's just a, an invitation for everybody to sort of step away from the dichotomy, you know, and to your point of what you just said, like, what is the point of your company existing anyway? It's probably not just the bottom line. And don't get me wrong. I love money. Like I'm all about making money. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be excited. More about march it. and more mission. Right. Exactly. But it, it requires also that we, again, think about like, what is our product or our service doing in the world? And that really means that we can't we can't separate between you know types of disciplines. So anyway, that's my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of soapboxes. Listeners know this, so they're it's not new. So, what are a few actionable tips that you'd offer to listeners who want to be like smart about future proofing their organization, their yeah their their teams and their organizations? And what are your suggestions for? leading meetings, gatherings, whatever, because I know you do a lot of that in a hybrid environment. I think so. I think hybrid is the trickiest hybrid for listeners, meaning um, some people are in person and other people are online. Like in person is one thing, all online is another thing. But this middle ground, I feel like is super tricky. And I have a lot, I'm hearing from a lot of folks that they are on the struggle bus with it. Yeah, definitely. And I'll just say, I think there's a piece around belonging to this. That it, what, what is hard is creating a sense of we're all here, we're all present, we all belong. That hybrid makes more challenging. Yeah, definitely. I I mean, I, I think the first step, to some degree, most of us have been cured of thanks to COVID. Like you just mentioned, once we see, you know, our half-naked kids run around and our cat, you know, step on the keyboard and whatever, it's like, we're kind of like, okay, this is just you just go with it, right? I mean, as silly as that is in some ways. That is the type of environment that starts to demonstrate like it's okay to be a human, right? This isn't about this sort of supremacist notion of perfection, whatever perfection is supposed to mean anyway. So I think really just, again, demonstrating more through action than even through words with your team that like provided, you know, we're not doing something wildly inappropriate on camera that like we're just humans doing the best that we can in any given moment in time. And if I've got some bedhead, you we're gonna live, right? Yeah. It'll it, it's it's gonna be okay. Well, I think part of what's interesting is so with hybrid, if you're coming into like you could show up a little bit of bedhead if you're on Zoom, but if you're coming into the office, bedhead's still not really embraced as like, and I'm gonna put the professional, right? So you have a group of people that are sort of, I'm gonna call that like showing up old school right? Like they put on both tops and bottoms and they match and they're like shoes are the same shoes. They might've even put on earrings. I have shown up with different earrings on when I was just emerging. I will just put that out there. I will leave the house with no makeup on all the time, but I always have earrings on. It's just a little personality glitch. And I was like, oh my, oh my golly. Okay. Well, that's happening. Anyway. So, but there is like this, so they're showing up one way. So how do we, how do we like harmonize, like bring in the, like the humanness that we, that was the goodness of the virtual environment and like harmonize that in these different environments. And I don't know if you have answered that, but that's, these are things that are on my mind these days. 
Yeah, no, I, I definitely hear you. And I, I do think some of it is generational again, just oh, to kind of rebring that topic up because most of my colleagues um, who are currently in their 20s don't have the same types of sort of screen versus in-person hangups. Like they've acclimated and acculturated to screen use in a very, very different way than us kind of, you know, middle-aged fogies, right? They they don't, like, they just sort of feel like the screen and interacting with the screen is no different than like, I can pick up this pen or I can pick up my phone. You know, it's like, it's just a device that just helps me kind of operate in the world. And so I do think that some of it is is like those of us who are not habituated to that kind of just need to like get over it a little bit. And would you also say have explicit conversations about it? I mean, this is one of the things that like, I think it's people are like, this is awkward. I don't want to talk about awkward. I want to shy away from awkward. It's like actually not talking about it makes it more awkward. Yeah, for sure. Talking about it makes it more awkward. So absolutely. More conversation, if, please. If feeling like it's awkward, 100% conversation all the way. Um, but I think the question might be a little bit more meta in that case. Like, well, what what is it that is registering as awkward? Mm-hmm. You know, because if it's somebody sitting there in their yoga pants at home with like their puppy in their lap versus I put on a suit and I showed up and I've got my briefcase and I'm making a presentation, if I find that awkward, why? I know not that, that is a correct or incorrect way to feel, right? You get to feel however you, you to feel, feel your feels. But- yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's well, great. I think there's also just a, I just want to acknowledge that the more resource your organization is, the more tech support you have. And there are just some like basic technology things that, um, you know, I think of small, especially non, you know, not nonprofits who don't have the technology in place to do hybrid well. So I just want to just say that to them for any listeners who are like, well, you know, this is, it's complicated because we don't have that support. Whereas when I'm working, you know, yeah. working with bigger organizations, more, more, more well-resourced. I don't know if that's the right way to say that, but um, they do have the technology, you know, they can make the zoom people feel like they're in the room in ways that you kind of can't, if you don't have that. So that's a very practical point. Anything else that you would like to share with listeners who are like, I, I want to get my team ready. I care about my team. I want to lead through change. Yeah. I guess the one other thing I would like to bring up is that in such a globalized world, we oftentimes have organizations where there is, you know, I'll just say, cause I'm currently based in Los Angeles. Say there's an LA team and then say there's a team in Istanbul and there's a team in Paraguay and there's a team in, you know, et cetera. You get my point. Something I unfortunately see all the time is that everyone's expected to conform to us hours and also that we'll we'll talk a big game and do all sorts of awesome stuff for inclusion by U.S. standards, and then not have inclusion that is actually uh, you know responsive to folks in other countries. And the really really sad part to me about this is that oftentimes we actually see this sort of um, I would almost call it like DEI colonialism, right? Where it's like whatever is of in the DEI landscape in the U.S. becomes the gold standard of inclusion in another country. And it's like, well, no, we just imported actually <laughs> our, our conceptualizations of DEI to somewhere else and insisted that they like it. Um, so when it comes to DEI, when it comes to inclusion, when it comes to social impact, 
you know, and this goes back to the beginning of the conversation, talk to your people. Do not just because you went and you got a thing and you read a book and you went to a training and this and that. Great. Awesome. I applaud you. Please, in fact, please do, please more, do more of that. Yeah, definitely. But don't assume the best to everyone everywhere. Yeah. I was I was talking to someone recently who heads up a it doesn't matter. They're in the, you know, the purpose space. And she said we we've spent months like earnestly trying to figure out how to best serve this one community, you know, all these people and meetings and whatnot. And finally someone says, I have an idea. Why don't we go ask them what they need? I was like, oh golly, those moments are <laughs> Those moments are hurt. Yeah. You know, when, and when yeah. I'm working with clients, I'm always like, we're going to get as much, you know, up front. My joke is that I'm democratic and then increasingly draconian in any process, right? Because you want like the cornucopia perspectives and voices up front. And it doesn't work to like have the, all the everyone figuring out the messaging, you know, especially that external messaging. So I really, I appreciate you bringing that global perspective in. It's important. Where can people find you in your awesome work? Thank you. Um, yes, on Instagram, I am at D-R-S-A-R-A-M-U-R-D-O-C-K, Dr. Sarah Murdoch. Um, I am wildly inconsistent. Sometimes I post all the time and sometimes I forget for a week if I'm really busy, but, uh, you know, do my best there. And then uh, my website is the same. So it's www.drsaramurdoch.com. Uh, that's mostly a, a sort of portfolio of, you'll see this interview, for mm-hmm, example. I haven't updated it in a couple months. There'll be much more up there shortly. Um, but yeah, it's basically a portfolio of most of the uh, kind of thought leadership that I've done. I also am about to uh, begin touring a keynote called From Boss to Leader to Visionary. And there will be some little teaser snippets of there as well for anybody who's into uh, live thought leadership. So I'm very excited. About Thank you for coming, sharing your, your nuggets of wisdom and your slightly... Um, what did you say about the lazy and productivity? Audacious, I'll call it audacious or not. You know, it's that's we need to be thinking about these things differently. So I really appreciated that. Also, thank you, listeners, as always, for being here with us, sticking with it through the conversation. Do good, be well, and we will see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode of the Communicate IO podcast, you know what to do next. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share. Leading can be hard. Communication doesn't need to be. If you're interested in having your organization or team learn how to communicate I.O., I would love to hear from you. Get in touch at info at Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for being a leader who is making our workplaces and our world better places to be.